This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... When not to create settings based on the real world. The War of 1812. Food we have prepared and or eaten. And occultist Kenneth Grant. We average nine new titles a day. That's over 60 a week. And we've got well over 15,000 RPG titles online right now. Drive through RPG, the one true source for RPGs. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Roger B.W. asks Ken and Robin. When designing a setting, Ken has said, his first recourse is often to find a bit of the real world, present or historical, that can be made to serve as a backdrop, because there's lots more detail there than a single author could come up with. What are some reasons, he continues puckishly, not to use the real world? So, Robin, as uh, the uh, guy who didn't say that, do you want to take first swing at it? Well, I guess the first thing to unpack here is what we mean when we say the real world. Is a setting that is a historical period with the serial numbers filed off, or a couple of historical periods mashed together, does that count as not being the real world? Because that changes the question enormously. For example, if Westeros from Game of Thrones is an imaginary setting, that is an imaginary setting that is very clearly based on a bunch of accessible things that by mix-mastering them all together makes them different and fresh and allows you to tell a historical story that is ahistorical, but at the same time is accessible and familiar. So if that is an example of not using the real world, that's something that I've done a fair bit of myself, either working in tie-in worlds that are pre-existing that are based on the real world, but not like, for example, the Warhammer setting that I wrote a big supplement and then three novels in, or uh, the world of Galarian, which is the Pathfinder world, which is a pulpified, uh, again, a, a historical mixmaster world. And those give you the option of referring to real history, but playing with it. And that enables you to, in writing fiction or game stuff, to sort of generalize about history. So that if you want to tell a tale, for example, about abuse of power, uh, there's all sorts of historical examples that you could go to if you wanted to just retell the story of Muammar Gaddafi or, uh, you know, name your horrible leader from whatever period of history. But if you want to speak about that in a more general way and kind of break out from it a bit, if by fictionalizing it, you're engaging to some extent in allegory. And if that's what you're interested in doing, rather than being called out for the fact that you're a biography of Richard III is rife with uh, slanders from the French and is not historically accurate, that's kind of the way to go. If you're, however, talking about a world that is completely divorced from the world as we know it, that's a tricky thing because that world would necessarily be completely alien. Yeah, I mean, I guess that is kind of the question. I mean, uh, when you ask about the real world, I tend to draw the line at the proper names right? If the proper names are those that are either the real world 
or something that is so close to the real world as to not even bother uh, making it, uh, as, as to make the transition almost seamless. So something like uh, Rokugan is fairly clearly pretty much Japan, or uh, uh, Guy Gavriel K's novels um, uh, are pretty much whatever uh, historical uh, place they're, they're set with just one tweak. Harry Turtledove's Videsos novels on a slightly higher note. Uh, something like Gabriel Garcia Marquez's Hundred Years of Solitude is a, a real-world style mank, a Ruritania set in the Caribbean. Uh, it, it's got a real Caribbean. It's got the real you know, sense of, of what's going on in the Caribbean past. One of those things where everything is real except the place or kingdom or city that you've decided to set it in. Right, yeah. That, um, you know, Superman's Metropolis or Lovecraft's Arkham, I would consider to be real-world settings or even... Uh, Howard's Hyborian Age, and I guess where I would start divorcing, you know, stop considering it the real world for the purposes of what I'm talking about, uh, is something like Westeros, which while it is um, obviously the Wars of the Roses plus Mongols plus Dragons plus Zombies, is still has gone to enough trouble to sand off those serial numbers and try to uh, deal with the sort of the holistic melding of all of those things, whereas if you just say I'm going to do my uh, setting in King Arthur with um, uh, nuclear weapons, then you still got King Arthur, and you're still using that that fundamental structure. I guess uh, something like Tolkien is another example where he's basing it out of legitimate uh, legends and and actual Anglo-Saxon and, and other uh, British epics, but he's building a self-contained artificial world out of those ingredients as opposed to simply you know, retelling, um, I don't know, the Song of Roland or the Canterbury Tales or something with elves in it. And that's, I guess, where I would put paint the, the, the broad fuzzy line that you talk about between the real world and the fantasy world. So having thus drawn that line, I think the benefits of going to a, a world that is imagined in the way that uh, Middle Earth or, or Westeros or uh, uh, Fritz Leiber's Nuhan or Jack Vance's The Dying Earth are that not only that they allow you that level of abstraction that allows you to sort of generalize about the human experience and engage in allegory, but that there is a, an intrinsic appeal to a lot of people, uh, readers in, very much in the geekosphere, who enjoy the exploration of an imaginary world. And they uh, want to think of the world as being as different as possible. And the idea of imaginatively traveling around in an unfamiliar place and getting to know it, a sort of a vicarious tourist trip into an invented world with all of its details and shadings, is something that I think people find appealing on its face and something that can, through a sort of an experimental uh, thought process, again, reflect back on the human experience in various ways, so that if you, in an imagined world, create an anthropology for your culture, that not only is sort of interesting as a, a thought experiment and perhaps tells you something about anthropology, about how cultures work, but it um, causes me to lose my train of thought. Well, if, if it does that, then surely it has done everything that fantasy literature can be expected to do. Thank you for saving my bacon on that one, Ken. <laughs> yes. um, I, I think that the, the, there's sort of there's two reasons to to do that. That you can either be talking about it as a setting, like you're talking about that that love of exploring a strange new world that you can't get 
merely by pretending that uh, when Columbus sailed the ocean blue, he didn't land in America, but he landed in, you know, Lemuria or somewhere. And you get some of the, I mean, that could be fun, but it sort of falls between the stools for a, a alternate Columbus or a fantasy world. Whereas if you just set your adventures in Lemuria or whatever sort of, uh, or the dying earth or middle earth, then that is a, that is that sort of geographical sense. And obviously the other big lobe of that is uh, space traveling science fiction, where even if it's set on, you know, around stars that we can see in a telescope, we don't have the faintest idea what the planets orbiting Tau Ceti are like, or, you know, much less the Klingon Empire or something equally, uh, you know, imaginary. And that sort of geographical necessity that we simply can't know what those places are like, I think is one of the reasons to do it. I, I think the other reason to do it is because and this is going to be a purely a subjective type thing, you get the sense that doing whatever the thing is you want to do to the real world would so badly mar the reality of it that you would lose the advantage of setting it in the real world. Uh, for the adventure that I just did for Lamentations of the Flame Princess was a, a sort of a mank on uh, all the, you know, sort of the, the great uh, war epics um, uh, Valhalla Rising and The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly and Apocalypse Now and all of those sort of um, uh, moving through a devastated war-torn landscape uh, type uh, things. And so I set it in an analog of Cambodia, but I didn't set it in actual historical Cambodia because the notion of sort of medieval fantasy wizards fighting a giant war in Cambodia simultaneously makes the allegory too on the nose and also, I think, breaks both the Cambodia and the magical sense of wonder. Because people who know, you know, they, they think about Cambodia, they will say, well, why, why are we over here in this part of Cambodia, not in this much more historically interesting, but far more complex than I could fit in 20,000 words uh, worth of adventure part of Cambodia? They would start, uh, you know, hemming and hawing. There, there, I think would be, it would be a lot of, of, of interference in, in sort of the, the signal-to-noise uh, version of that. And then simultaneously... Uh, it, it, you lose that sort of archetypal sense of wonder quality where there are, you know, titanic archmages bestriding the universe, flinging leaven bolts of unimaginable uh, power at each other. And I think that that feels, I think, better in a fantasy context, uh, unless you've, you know, really got it working into the, uh, into, into the history. I, I think you could see that maybe if you recast, you know, I don't know, the Napoleonic Wars that way, but recasting it as a war sometime in the Middle Ages in Cambodia, uh, I, I think certainly a Western audience would, would, would dismiss that in a way that they would not dismiss a fantasy world, which I could then go ahead and base very, very strongly on Cambodia, geographically, culturally, mythologically, etc. And on a sort of a related note, another benefit is that you can idealize a setting in a way that you can't necessarily idealize the real world anymore. So that if uh, a lot of people don't necessarily want to deal with the uh, horrors of history or just history, period, it's something that they consider boring. Uh, there is just the fact that uh, there's a big chunk of the uh, audience that we deal with who are not interested in straight history. But if you add a wizard or a ray gun to it, suddenly they're intensely interested. And the further away you get from actual history, the more interested they are. In part, this is because there's sort of an, an escapist element to it where you want to play in an idealized world. And that can either be sort of the traditionally idealized world of Tolkien, where you get uh, a 
sort of bracing conventional morality of good versus evil, and you have all of these picturesque details, and people want to picture themselves living in the Shire or hanging out with the elves on the boat or whatever it is. Um, or conversely, the more contemporary trend, which is to uh, sort of de-idealize worlds. Again, to go back to Westeros, that is a world that is even more horrible than the actual medieval period, and it's cool in that sort of dark, brooding kind of way. It's not a society that would actually survive, given the incredible death rate you see of uh, anybody who's involved in any sort of a, a conflict or anything going on there. And it's a revisionist take on fantasy that it draws, you know, sort of contrast with the, the Tolkien. And both of those cases, again, allow you to say something about your outlook about life and by the way that you build and depict your world. Yeah, and, and I think another argument, although not one that's necessarily applicable to Westeros, but I think is more applicable to the sort of what you were calling mixed master fantasy settings like Greyhawk or Galerion, is that a lot of times people want to play in, you know, fundamentally the Roman Empire, fundamentally uh, Viking times, but they don't but want... still be a ninja. But they still want to be a ninja, and they don't want uh, to have to have a bunch of sexism and racism around to make themselves feel bad. Uh, except, of course, the racism of killing orcs who are evil. Yeah, and, and that's the biggest idealization that we find in you know traditional fantasy. And also the big thing that I think people want to remove from real history in order to have fun playing in it is uh, traditional religion, is that almost every medieval fantasy world does not have the church. And by taking out the church, you take out the number one fundamental element of that society. And people want to do that because they do not want to live in a constrained world that the medieval church creates. They want to have cool armor, but sort of be free like kind of American cowboys on the frontier. Yeah, there's a comment that I uh, that I made some time ago, probably in, out of the box, where I said that uh, the fundamental myth of Dungeons and Dragons is the story of well-armed strangers wandering the land doing whatever they want. And if you're an American, it's the Western, and you get Dungeons and Dragons. And if you're a European, it's the Thirty Years' War, and you get Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. And I think that both of those are sort of pointing toward the reason to avoid history, because they are, as you say, sort of idealizations in, in, the, in the direction of light or the direction of grim uh, to suit whatever your personal aesthetic is. But both of them are idealizations towards freedom for outsiders. Yeah. And that, of course, is the element that makes a protagonist have agency in a story. And through most of human history, the vast majority of people have no agency. And so if you want to tell a story about, you know, kings and queens and ruling classes, uh, which traditionally through most of history storytelling has been about because those people have freedom of action, that's fine. But if you want to tell stories about uh, outsiders or less elevated people doing interesting things and still want to create a sense of verisimilitude, you do need to alter your world quite a bit. Another thing that you get from not using real history is just the element of surprise, is that if you're telling the actual story of the War of the Roses, you know how that comes out. And just by uh, shifting to an imaginary world and imaginary people doing a in a situation that is a rough analog of the War of the Roses that allows you to have a sense of narrative suspense that you otherwise wouldn't get. Although I would say that any any game, you know, that has 
the possibility of an altered outcome that as any sort of outcome of changing the world, you can have that element of surprise simply by changing the ending of the Wars of the Roses or allowing the player characters to involve themselves in the ending of the Wars of the Roses. Uh, they can wind up, you know, uh, uh, marrying Margaret of Anjou themselves or killing Richard III as a baby or whatever it is that they decide that they want to do. And they will then be creating their own surprise. And f- to my way of thinking, it's much harder to get the element of surprise in a setting that you are forced to work to get identification with to begin with. And that's why I say, you know, uh, use actual history is because you begin with that sense of identification and the surprise that you feel when suddenly Francis I lands in uh, England and conquers it during the War of the Roses. That's a much bigger surprise than if Kragar the Spider King lands in Lumuria and conquers it during the War of the Geraniums. Although it's a surprise that comes with some degree of cognitive dissonance, just as the scene in Inglorious Bastards where they kill Hitler in a French movie theater in 44 does that, because uh, if you are, as soon as you do that, you're crossing over into an alternate reality game, which if everybody is either A, signed on for that from the beginning, or B, is willing to run with it is one thing, but if people have it in their frame of what they're doing, that the the contract says that we are participating in a recreation of actual history, you may find that the people in the group who are most invested in that history are most resistant in flipping the alternate history switch. I suspect that people who are simultaneously role-playing gamers and history buffs are less interested in reenactment than that uh, plaint seems to indicate. I mean, I'm not saying it never happens, but... Well, I don't think they're interested in reenactment per se, but I think they probably want to be the fictional characters operating in a universe where the things that they expect are going to happen. Well, I I think that that's certainly one possibility, and, you know, this comes down to, you know, Robin's zeroth law of uh, GMing, which is know what your players want and give it to them. Right. But I think that there are plenty of advantages to using imaginary worlds that do not... uh, uh, overlap so much with the advantages that you can also get, or I would argue get more powerfully from using uh, actual history or closely historically based worlds. And I think that something, you know, where you're ta- where you were talking about using it as an allegory or in some you know, way to, to sort of amp up that, that sense of wonder in the old term, uh, I think that that is where a created world can, can do you a, a lot more good because you can build it from the ground up to emphasize those, those features. Like Tolkien builds all of Middle-earth to emphasize this notion of the ending of the Third Age, the diminishment of magic, the pulling away of the elves, the fact that humanity is inheriting this sort of, um, uh, you know, corroded statue of a world. Uh, he he built the whole world around that, and you can't do that as easily, even if you set it in a uh, parallel historical era, such as the dying of the American West, or the uh, collapse of the of the independent barons in uh, Russia, or whatever it happens to be. Another advantage of using a unreal world is just that a lot of people feel constrained by their lack of grasp of the detail. That if there's an informational gap between people in the group, and particularly if the GM does not feel extremely well versed in whatever period they want to riff on, I think people are quite reluctant to get into that or are reluctant to just do what I would recommend they do, which is if you don't know the answer, make it up. Now, again, that gets into that alternate history thing sort of b- via a back door and kind of by default where you wind up 
just because you don't know the reference for where Eleanor of Aquitaine was at a given time and you make it up and then slowly over time you get further and further from the real history, although that shouldn't necessarily make a difference to people, that they should feel as free to play with history as studio-era Hollywood did, which is to say considerably, uh, the reality is that often people don't, and it kind of shuts down their creativity because they fear being corrected either by the guy in the group who knows more history than they do, or just by the fact that those facts are out there somewhere and they don't know them. I would I would tend to believe that more if The Forgotten Realms did not sell so well. And The Forgotten Realms uh, involves so much level of mastery of a recondite and nonsensical uh, continent and ecology and society and every other kind of thing. You know, the, there are reams of novels and books and atlases and God knows what for The Forgotten Realms. And it is hugely popular, and people love it, and people love to play in it, and it can't, therefore, be as grotesque a obstacle that someone in the group knows more about the Forgotten Realms than you do, because that's guaranteed to happen in any group of people about involved in the Forgotten Realms. If it were a thing where everyone was sort of discovering the land together, you know, that makes more sense. If it's a, a world that the GM has created, I absolutely would buy that that is a legitimate... Um, uh, uh, thing that happens. But you absolutely do get that issue in super detailed worlds like the Forgotten Realms or like Lorantha, where people are reluctant to run it because there's so much detail that they don't know. And there's another guy in the group who does know. And in Glorantha circles, that's a huge issue. And the accessibility of that world and how to get people in and how to tell people that it's okay to make stuff up, which of course is uh, Greg Stafford's mantra, and I'm sure Ed Greenwood's mantra in the Forgotten Realms as well. Uh, but people don't want to take that step. They're afraid because they've had this uh, imaginative engagement with this world. They are reluctant to make their own world. They want to be playing in Ed's world or Greg's world, even though they don't necessarily know all of the facts about it. And maybe somebody else in the in the group does. And that's, I, I think, a, a self created problem that the solution to that is just don't worry about it is allow yourself to make it your forgotten realms or your glorantha or your galarian but that's weirdly enough a hard sell to a lot of people well i i certainly can't say that that level of um a barrier to entry doesn't happen with glorantha and i can only assume that it does happen in at some places with the forgotten realms but my larger point was that it is obviously not a crippling matter for a whole field of gaming given the huge success success of uh, Forgotten Realms and the uh, still respectable success of Glorantha as set Right, but the thing is is that there are, are separate taste groups. There are people who eat that up with a spoon and love mastering all of the detail, and other people who uh, are intimidated by the degree of detail either in a real historical period or in one of these incredibly nuanced worlds. And again, it comes down to uh, you know, another of my zero flaws, which is that different people uh, need a different toolkit in order to enjoy playing a role-playing game and that you need to know what you're comfortable with and what the players expect of you and find the midpoint between that. And for some people, devouring a ton of Forgotten Realms books and rattling everything off from memory is great. For other people, uh, glancing at it and having read one Elminster novel and then making it up as you go along works great. And it all depends on the mix of people at your table and the expectations they bring with them. So I guess the, I guess the question, though, to sort of bring it back around to, to Roger's question is, when 
is it better, or what would be the advantages, I guess, to playing in Glorantha as opposed to a sort of high fantasy, heavily mythical, using the hero quest rules Roman Empire? Uh, if you're in the Lunar Empire in Glorantha or the Roman Empire in a, in a hero quest game with a lot of uh, magic and cults and, and storm bowls and such, only you call the storm bowl Poseidon because that's his damn name. What is the reason to play in Glorantha as opposed to that Roman Empire? Well, I think that gets back to the, the alternate anthropology point that I made earlier and sort of slid out of, which is that by looking at these transfigured cultures that superficially resemble our own in a sort of mixed master way, but the deeper you get into them, the more you get into uh, Greg Stafford's worldview and a sense of history that uh, tells you about our real history in the way that he writes his imaginary history. For example, uh, the ethos of the people in Glorantha over historical time, as reflected in his historical documents, is not an idealized sense at all. It's a, it's a, a messy story of uh, betrayal and uh, uh, leaders who uh, say one thing and do another. In, in, the, uh, in other words, it is our real world through a, a distorted lens that tells us about the real world. So there is the pleasure, first of all, of, again, exploring a, a detailed, imagined world and trying to bring that to life. And then it's a matter of a, a, the telling contrast between uh, what we know and what Greg is telling us through what he knows about this world that he made up. Okay. I think that having brought it back around to uh, your first answer, we have at the very least uh, circled this topic uh, dramatically, perhaps even underlined it. And now we once again pry open the log cabin doors of the History Hut, and uh, we're drawing to a close in the year uh, 2012, so we would be remiss as a Canadian and an American uh, who talk about stuff not to talk about the War of 1812, or as Canadians know it, that time we burned down the White House. Uh, now, I understand you have some weird recondite objection to that mythic framing of the story, uh, but I'm sure that your overall uh, context of this conflict, uh, though un-Canadian and therefore wrong, uh, will prove enlightening to those for whom this is an obscure uh, war and not, of course, the most telling military conflict of all time. Well, um, it, when you sent me the, uh, the little outline, uh, I did some research, as I am wont to do, and I discovered that the War of 1812 is indeed unjustly neglected in American memory, because it is, after all, the war in which the USS Constitution swept the Atlantic clean of the hated British. It is the war in which perfidious Albion encouraged the Potawatomi Indians to burn down Fort Dearborn, the site of the future Chicago. It is the war in which, uh, of course, Francis Scott Key, while immured in the rotting war hulk, symbolic of the entire uh, British uh, imperial uh, war machine, nevertheless saw the unflinching courage of Fort McHenry and wrote our national anthem. Uh, and it is, of course, the war in which Andy Jackson fought the bloody British at the town of New Orleans. So therefore, the War of 1812 perhaps does deserve a little bit more uh, of our attention. I would, however, once more remind you, and uh, by extension my other Canadian uh, interlocutors, that 
there were more Americans involved in burning down the White House than there were Canadians. The British unit in question came directly from the Peninsular Wars. It did not stop in Canada to recruit even so much as a subaltern or boot plaque, but it did include a number of uh, freed American slaves who had uh, gone to what was called Fort Albion, which was the British post on the Chesapeake Bay that they used to get uh, fresh water and naval stores and such. Uh, and as they did in the Revolution, the British offered uh, amnesty and uh, liberation to any slaves who could make their way to British lines. And they were recruited into a unit called the Colonial Marines, which also involved a number of freed French slaves from Guadeloupe. Uh, and so it was, uh, given uh, what we know about the way the British uh, military details worked, almost certainly Americans who burned down the White House because they would have been the ones who would have been given the dangerous, unpleasant disgusting job of smearing paraffin and oily rags all around the U.S. Capitol. Well, I, I now see the, the crux of your misapprehension, but uh, perhaps before uh, we get to that, we have to explain what the War of 1812 means in the Canadian consciousness. And of course, just as uh, history belongs to the victors, history also, or at least mythic history, belongs to the people who care most about a conflict. And certainly because this is a defining conflict for Canada, of course, before there was a Canada, a, a mere footnote, I must say, that surely, uh, because we are mythically wrapped in the War of 1812, which I don't know about all this Andrew Johnson nonsense, uh, New Orleans, that is a, a mere sideline or frippery. I think there might have been going something going on in Europe as well at the time. I'm unaware of that. But uh, well, Tchaikovsky wrote an, or an overture, I believe. Uh, oh, yes. That's, that's when the one with the cannons. It's, exactly. uh, it's very lovely. There was an um, overture. Yes, um, but that uh, in the Canadian national myth, that this is the uh, war that we won against the Americans by not losing, which of course is the ultimate Canadian victory, is simply that if the Americans come calling and they do not take you over, if in fact you deliver them a stalemate, which in American terms is surely a shattering defeat, that this is a defining uh, victory by uh, Canadian standards. So I, I guess then the question is, besides um, being cold and remote, is there any other specific act of Canadian, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, heroism that uh, we should be cognizant of as uh, good-natured neighbors and citizens of the world? Is there some sort of heroic beaver who brought the crullers through to keep the men at Lundy's Lane fed or something like that? Uh, mentioning uh, tasty, tr uh, sweet treats is, of course, you are zeroing in on this, our uh, national uh, hero of this conflict is our version of uh, Paul Revere, who uh, crossed a border under uh, desolate circumstances to uh, warn the Canadians of the approach of American for forces. And that would, of course, be Laura Secord, uh, of whom a chocolate company is now named, so that uh, whenever you fatten yourself on Laura Secord Easter eggs, you are, again, uh, celebrating this uh, mythic victory and the uh, uh, birth of Canadian consciousness as represented by the magical chocolatey-covered egg. Well, that's actually very nice, though. I mean, the, you have that sort of, um, uh, like, a Eucharistic participation in the in the liberation of your uh, quote-unquote nation. That's Indeed, that's and uh, there are most uh, memorable uh, war hero uh, is uh, is a woman, so that's, uh, that's pretty good and, and pretty Canadian. But I guess, uh, so let's get back to this uh, claim you have that we Canadians did not burn down the White House. There's some business about there being Americans and British and, and not actual Canadians? Yes, that's pretty much the uh, unvarnished historical truth. 
Uh, some of the British may later have settled in Canada, making them uh, Canadian by, I think, the uh, recondite laws of Canadian history, that anyone who ever passed through Canada at any time and ate more than three meals there is retroactively a Canadian for all time. Now, I happen to think that a nation that has produced William Shatner hardly needs to um, uh, uh, buttress its laurels with such unbecoming grasping at straws. See, now, but, now we've discussed this a number of times, and now finally I see what your key mistake is, and that is in uh, how Canadians get things done. So, for example, let us imagine a hypothetical Canadian who has a uh, comic strip featuring the adventures of queasy green satirical birds who occasionally pull guns on one another, and one hopes that at some point this comic strip will be collected from one's website and published. Mm -hmm. How does one affect that? Let's see. Uh, one obviously assembles it in a series of uh, best-selling uh, comic books, then in a series of uh, graphic novel-style compilations, uh, and sells them through the dorktower.com website. That is the only natural way to do things. Uh, well, in this instance, this was an example of me getting a British person to do something. Right. But indeed, the general principle is, uh, is the same. Or, for example, let us say that one uh, writes a... Uh, exquisitely creepy series of weird tales based on the Robert W. Chambers mythos, and one is willing to do the uh, e-book oneself, but one is uh, not interested in uh, having that book physically published. Uh, again, what, as a Canadian, does one do? If, if I may follow your line of reasoning, one recruits someone from a country with a functioning navy to do it. So that would imply then America. Indeed, yes. So that is how Canadians get things done, is that they to sort of evince a hope or desire for something. And, of course, they're extremely charming and creative and witty. And, therefore, Americans and uh, Brits and sometimes Australians and Germans accomplish the things that they wish accomplished. And, therefore, this is how we burn down the White House. By asking the British very nicely to do it for you. Indeed, yes. Okay. Well, there you go. So, uh, you are saying that you burn down the White House by, uh, by dint of failing to prevent the burning of York, Ontario. Well, if, if you have to uh, burn one thing or the other and then be proud of it later. Yeah, right. Uh, obviously, you know, no one cares about the burning of York, Ontario, whereas everyone is very impressed by the burning of the White House. In, in fact, even to this day, people periodically propose the burning of York, Ontario, just on general principle. <laughs> well, uh, you know, again, I'm not going to step into what is clearly an internal matter. Um, although, again, the person who technically uh, asked, requested the British to burn down the White House was also a British person. It was Sir the George... Word, the word technically is doing all of the work in that sentence, my friend. <laughs> yes. Well, his, his name was Sir George Prevost. He was, at the time, the Governor General of the Canadas, and who, the instant he could, fled back to England and never set foot in Canada again. And, and bad cess to him, as we say. <laughs> you, you can tell he's insignificant in our myth, because he's a Governor General of whom nothing is named. <laughs> oh, wow. And, and given the vast expanse of things that you have to name and the paucity of, of proper names that you have to use, that is a stinging indictment of Sir George. Indeed, yes. I mean, did he, did he commit some other, um, uh, some other grievous sin against the Canadian nationhood that I, I, I am unaware of? I just think the name is just not as musical as Dundas or Elgin. Right, okay, well, fair enough. He's, he's certainly no Lord Kitchener, that's for damn sure. Uh, indeed, yes. K Kitchener, of course, had to be yoked into service to have a city named after him uh, in World War I uh, because there was a city named Berlin, Ontario, and that, <laughs> right. that couldn't stand. Yes, and he uh, did, in fact, 
um, uh, fail to invade America. It was the other thing that George Prevost did, if I am reading this correct. He was, um, uh, he was the guy who tried to invade America at the Battle of Plattsburgh, and when his navy was sunk on Lake Champlain, decided that uh, running away was the better part of valor. Well, we should, we should then retroactively name something after him, because we wouldn't have wanted to end up with a chunk of America. That would have been just a lot of bother, frankly. It, it would have been Vermont, so it wouldn't have been as much bother as all that, but still. Uh, it may not have even been noticeable as appreciably different from Canada in that case. Right. Uh, well, now that we've uh, straightened out and established exactly how uh, we burned down the White House, it's uh, time to <laughs> leave the History Hut and hopefully without burning it down. Once more, the benefits of being a Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff sponsor uh, obtrude themselves on our consciousness and therefore on yours as we erect a brand new uh, hut glistening with uh, granite countertops and stainless steel appliances. This is the Food Hut, uh, requested by Dork Tower Impresario and successful uh, cartoonist of only intermittently queasy bird-like uh, figures, uh, John Kavalik, <laughs> uh, who asks us to erect the Food Hut and then asks what recipes we have been working on, uh, what food trends do you approve of, and what trends do you disapprove of, which seems like an ample uh, a supply of staples with which to stock the Food Hut pantry. Indeed, yes, much to chew on. Well, I have to confess that I am not a recipe guy. I am a go-to-the-market and uh, see what's there and uh, buy it, and then uh, either that night or later uh, when there are things in the fridge, I look at them and I think, what delicious treat can I make for myself and my lovely wife that will earn me uh, brownie points as, as a husband and uh, feed me in the manner to which a, any freelancer should be accustomed? This is always my number two tip to uh, would-be uh, freelance creators is learn to cook. Um, and so um, I've been doing a lot of uh, roasting lately. Uh, recently, I found that if you uh, combine uh, uh, blanched uh, turnip and onion and chabby sausage and uh, mushrooms and tomatoes and uh, put them in the roast pan for a while until everything seems done, you get a delicious combination of uh, flavors. Uh, last night, I uh, went a little simpler and did uh, shrimp tacos with uh, a commercial lime mango uh, salsa on uh, a bed of uh, greens on uh, on gordito uh, tacos. But uh, Toronto is a great food town, at least downtown Toronto, has uh, an enormous uh, wealth of uh, food out there for uh, foraging with one's uh, uh, wallet. And I guess inevitably a discussion of food is a discussion of place. Uh, every week I go shopping in uh, Toronto's Kensington Market, uh, named, of course, as things in Canada often are against things in the UK. Uh, and this is a rapidly changing neighborhood that unfortunately is gentrifying a lot right now. But what used to be the number one neighborhood where every immigrant group from about 1910 on initially settled when they came to Toronto, and then when they became wealthy, they moved out making room for the next wave of immigrants and also leaving behind their 
uh, food stores or restaurants. Uh, so uh, the first synagogue in Toronto is in uh Kensington, and there until recently was a classic uh, Jewish dairy. Uh, and you go on and on and on from you go up to the Portuguese community, and suddenly here's the Koreans. And so this neighborhood until recently has been a map of immigration in Toronto. And now what it is, is a hipsterfying area that now there's a new bagel place coming in to restore bagels to Kensington that you can tell is going to be sort of a high-end foodie version of the wood-fired bagel. So it's sort of a retro movement uh, coming full circle. And so I guess the thing that I, the food trend that I really love is this trend towards so-called artisanal food, a adjective which is not going to last us very long until it gets into the dustbin of aggrandizement along with gourmet. But with that uh, comes a sense of uh, gentrification and a sense of uh, recapturing what used to be very simple food that belonged to different nationalities and making it into a, a big deal for uh, well-heeled, educated people to coo over. So that would be one of the trends that you disapprove of is the cooing? I'm not sure I disapprove over cooing. I'm certainly a food cooer myself, but I think um, there's a definitely a sense of irony in the way that you've sort of traced the role of food and the role of history in the neighborhood, where now it is something that has to be recreated for people with more money rather than being something that is just simple food made uh, for whatever community it is. And, and when you're a member of the community, you're not going out looking for new food experiences. You're looking for the basic, simple foods that your uh, great-grandma made and your grandma made and your mom made, and they just always sort of defined you as a person. Well, I think you and I, as the last uh, people uh, in the Anglosphere to live in a world that did not have everything uh, suffused with irony, maybe the last people capable of seeing it in things like uh, the artisanal food movement. But I take your meaning, certainly. Um, in my personal, uh, since we're talking about, you know, food and place, Chicago is, I guess, simultaneously fortunate and unfortunate in that it doesn't have a single, uh, sort of centralized location where everything, uh, culinary goes to happen, uh, at, uh, either in waves or at once. Our, our, you know, city of neighborhoods, when the Czechoslovakians, for example, moved out of Pilsen, they pretty much took everything with them. They didn't leave behind a Czechoslovakian bakery, uh, and now it's all Mexican food. Or uh, Ukrainian Village is now pretty much, I think, all Puerto Rican, uh, or, or uh, it, it's very, very little of it is, is Ukrainian anymore. And similar things happen. You get a couple of sort of self-aware uh, um, polder uh, food cultures, uh, Lincoln Square in the far north of Chicago, was an early German neighborhood and still has a number of German restaurants, things like that. But in terms of this sort of uh, Brooklynization of food, there are plenty of hipster neighborhoods in Chicago, but the artisanal uh, nonsense seems to be fairly geographically dispersed as opposed to concentrated in such wise that you are forced to take notice of it if you just want to go out and um, uh, get a rasher of linguisa or something. Uh, in terms of what I've been experimenting with recipe-wise, generally each year I sort of pick a thing that I don't know very well and I play around with it all year. Last year I picked mustard and was just using any sort of 
promising looking recipe that involved mustard. And so I did some mustard roasts and I uh, made uh, some mustard salad and things like that, that uh, just to sort of open things up a couple of years before that, I did Moroccan food and I, I bought um, uh, Paula Wolfert's terrific Moroccan uh, cookbook, uh, Couscous. I think it, it's like Couscous and other uh, food from Morocco or something like that. And uh, cooked uh, some of that. Uh, some of the more sort of practical things that don't involve going out and finding, you know, an entire sheep, that kind of thing. And so that's sort of my approach. Well, because if you find an entire sheep, it probably belongs to somebody. Almost certainly. And the, and in in my experience, it generally does not uh, obtrude itself in a condition that allows me to immediately cook it either. There's a lot of, you know, shearing and whatnot that would be involved, and I, I don't need that kind of hassle. Uh, so I've right now uh, with the Chicago Film Fest going on, I've turned the food duties back over to Sheila, my own lovely wife. Uh, but as soon as I possibly can, I need to start cooking again to once more uh, build up that uh, store of uh, husbandly value that is what keeps me unmurdered. <laughs> um, as far as a food trend that I approve of, there's a food trend that I hope to approve of once they get it right, which is that. Uh, Toronto is finally uh, getting a barbecue scene. And the, the problem with this <laughs> is I'm that uh, it is impossible to get Southerners uh, to move to Toronto. That uh, That's so weird. You'd think they'd love it there. Yes, is that uh, if, if you're uh, an African-American uh, barbecue whiz, uh, you are unlikely to move here uh, despite the... Uh, uh, perhaps uh, friendlier social climbs just because it is uh, so darn cold. And if you are a uh, uh, regular uh, flavored uh, vanilla uh, southerner, uh, you probably find uh, both the culture and the climate unsalubrious. So we've had to have our hipsters uh, develop a barbecue and even the much beloved new supposedly great uh, barbecue restaurants here in Toronto. So far I go to them and they're not a patch on just a little cheap quasi Cheney place in Madison, Wisconsin, or in Indi Indianapolis, or, you know, not even the, the deep South, but hopefully, uh, although, it, you know, all of a sudden every sandwich in Toronto is a pulled pork sandwich. And I'm looking forward to maybe in a couple of years that it's an actually good pulled pork sandwich. <laughs> well, live the dream. That's what I say. Yes, exactly. I, I mean, given that it took Jim Crow and World War I to get uh, African-Americans to move to Chicago, much less Toronto, um, I don't think that you're... I, I think you are going to have to depend on your, your native pluck as opposed to simply uh, waiting around for Americans to do it for you, as is the Canadian way. Yes, I'm, a, I'm afraid that unlike burning down the White House, getting good barbecue is going to be difficult. Yeah, no, um, barbecue is, is one of those things that uh, is... It, it, you, you, you sort of develop a, a huge religion about it in the States, especially if you're from one of the, the sort of the Ur barbecue uh, creation areas. I was fairly fortunate that I grew up in Oklahoma, which is culturally between the Texas and Kansas City schools of barbecue. And then I moved to Chicago, which is a confluence of both uh, sort of the Alabama uh, barbecue and, uh, to a lesser extent, the sort of Tennessee, uh, South Carolina style. And I've obviously spent plenty of time in North Carolina and have enjoyed North Carolina Piedmont-style barbecue a great deal. So I'm sort of in the position of being able to appreciate it all without necessarily having a dog in that fight. Although I will admit that 
left in my own devices, Texas barbecue is, is the one that I enjoy. But Chicago has a number of good barbecue places and a larger number of mediocre barbecue places, which is a little bit frustrating, but I suspect seems, is, is, it, it's going to, it winds up being the fate of any place that isn't Memphis, Tennessee, or another uh, place that literally makes barbecue a function of the civic religion. So how much is Sh- uh, is Chicago still a meatpacking town? Because certainly there have been huge differences in or changes in the way that uh, industrial uh, food production has uh, sort of outsourced the labor of uh, putting meat together to uh, uh, minimum wage or sub-minimum wage immigrant, uh, illegal immigrant workers. Uh, and so the you know, the centers that used to depend on that as an industry have been hit really hard. What has happened to that industry in Chicago? In Chicago, the it, which used to be, you know, the, the hog butcher to the world, uh, slaughterhouse of nations, um, it, it used to be the, the greatest meatpacking uh, city in the world. And the stockyards in Chicago shut down, I think, in the late 60s or early 70s, some many years before I uh, became a uh, active Chicagoan as opposed to a potential Chicagoan. Uh, the, I believe there may be still some meatpacking that occurs at places like the Armor Plant or the Swift Plant in Chicago, but virtually all meatpacking in America now happens much closer to the places that the animals are raised. So they're 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 packed sort of on site in um, you know Iowa or or Kansas or, or Nebraska or Texas or somewhere, and uh, it's uh, much of it is made up of um, uh, of. Uh, undocumented workers uh, from Mexico or from Latin America generally, uh, which is, again, something that is, you know, certainly not hard to find in Chicago, but uh, in, I I think in the sort of, um, uh, I don't want to say feudal, but in the sort of isolated situation that you can get in a, uh, in a, in a hog farm in Iowa somewhere is a lot harder to uh, get that uh, in Chicago now with the, you know, huge amount of social resources for, for immigrants in, in Chicago. So I'm not sure to what extent we have anything other than sort of uh, um, accidental uh, packing going on. There, there may be some, but it is certainly not remotely on the scale that it was in the great days. So it's the sad ghosts of carnivory past. Yeah. I mean, we, we still eat plenty of meat, but it is, it is packed in, I, 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 again, I think that, you know, much as uh, the, the railroad built the Chicago meatpacking industry, the the, the refrigerated truck ended the meatpacking industry in Chicago to a large extent. And so you are able to, to, to pack meats closer to the, to the production and not pay uh, shipping costs twice, which is what you would have to do uh, back in the day. And uh, it was, uh, you know, it, it's the great creative destruction of capitalism, and I guess you can't complain about it too much. And certainly but the fact that I don't have to smell, you know, hogs being butchered if the wind shifts is, is a great benefit, I think, to me. But Having driven through Iowa and smelled hogs being butchered, I am uh, I, I'm relatively happy with it going the other way. But as a Chicagoan, you sort of you sort of miss that uh, that that element of, of civic identity, I guess. Uh, well, I was uh, thinking that when John suggested it, that the food hut might be a uh, a one time only hut. But as we've uh, segued from talk of food to uh, talk of place and therefore of history, it sounds like uh, we had some quite Ken and Robin things to talk about. So uh, perhaps the Food Hut will uh, remain up, uh, perhaps even with uh, some uh, hot dogs 
uh, in uh, boiling water until we get back. Right. I, I think that uh, there are there are many shelves left to explore here in the food hut, and I am eager to do that. Uh, and bring some barbecue next time. Absolutely. Now we come to our uh, final segment, a segment loyal Ken and Robin listeners are already well aware of, and that is consulting occultists. When I throw the name of an occultist at Ken, and he educates me as to this individual's place in the history of weirdness and the paranormal, and I ask further questions as his facts occasion. And in this case, I thought that I would have him tell me about somebody who uh, has come up a couple of times in this uh, podcast, but as Ken pointed out in our pre-show chat, is somewhat of an also-ran in the history of the cult. But uh, we can't only talk about the uh, major figures. I thought it might be interesting to look at somebody who uh, is sort of a, a fringe character. Uh, and of course, they're, over the history of the cult, I'm sure there are more forgotten fringe characters than there are uh, John Dees and uh, Madame Blavatsky's. So Ken, could you uh, an- give us the initial uh, W5 on Kenneth Grant? Okay, Kenneth Grant is um, sort of, uh, I, I think the simplest and clearest way to sort of get him placed is to say that he is, to Aleister Crowley, what August Derleth is to H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, with the exception being, the very important exception, that without Derleth there is a very good chance we would not know Lovecraft now, and I'm fairly sure that Aleister's... Uh, uh, publicity machine would have continued to function without Kenneth Grant. But what Kenneth Grant did is he uh, he was sort of um, interested in magic from an early age. Uh, he had a, uh, transi- a transmission from an outer human being uh, in 1939 when he was uh, 15, I guess. And so yeah, that's, I guess, when a lot of people have their outer human being transmissions. And, and, and where was he uh, born or raised? Oh, he was he was born in Essex in in England. He was uh, Welsh uh, by heritage, just like our buddy John Dee, and uh, was, uh, however, born in the heart and soul of old England. And he wound up sort of uh, corresponding with uh, Aleister Crowley, who uh, I am told by uh, outer human beings is pronounced Aleister Crowley, but the I, the odds of me changing a lifetime's habit. Uh, for a less cool-sounding last name, are pretty much nil. And, so. and here I thought it was the first name we were screwing up. No, no, no. It's Crowley, apparently, which is... I only found out because of the moderator in the second debate uh, being also a post uh, surnamed Crowley and thinking, gosh, what are the odds that uh, Alistair was pronounced similarly? But anyway, that's a separate point. The larger point being that Alistair Crowley uh, in 1944 was a tired, broken-down shadow of his self a wreck of of a magus. He was retiring to the to the beach at Hastings in the post sunset of his career, uh, and at this point he gets a letter from an enthusiastic young would be disciple, Kenneth Grant, and he thinks, okay, one more trip around the 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 uh, Charanzan. Let's see if we can bring the old magic. He writes back to Kenneth Grant. Uh, Grant basically 
works as his factotum and secretary, uh, writing down all of his um, uh, invocations and angry letters to the uh, uh, Crowleyite cults in California that aren't paying him. It's regrettable that there are no accounts payable spells in the occult canon. You would think that that would be a crucial thing, given how much of a priority it tends to be amongst practicing occultists. So anyway, uh, Grant goes to work for Crowley and becomes his uh, guy who drives up to London and gets him packets of silk cut and uh, uh, heroin and whatever he needs and comes down and tries to take notes and help out and learn magic. Uh, Crowley generally considers uh, Grant, according to everyone except Grant, to be sort of a goof and to get it all wrong. But, you know, disciples are not thick on the ground at this time, so he kind of puts up with him. He's initiated into some level of Crowley's occult order, the OTO, and uh, uh, the Argentinium Astrum, the AA, but the exact level is a matter of controversy. After Crowley dies, um, Grant quarrels with uh, Crowley's magical successor, Carl Germer, who is uh, in the only functioning OTO lodge left in the world, which is in California. Are you telling me that disciples had a schism or dispute after the departure of their prophet? I am telling you that very thing. It is as shocking to you as it was to me to read of it. Uh, but anyway, um, Grant basically takes a memo that he got from uh, Crowley's desk that said something on the order of, it's important to have a trained uh, person in England to care for the order. And th since it says, you know, re-Grant, at the uh, top of the of the memo, this is his proof of getting to inherit uh, Crowley's uh, mantle. He does do um, uh, a good deal of work editing and preparing Crowley's books, along with the uh, literary executor, uh, Julian Simons. And so he does uh, sort of um, uh, positive uh, work in terms of, of, of Crowley and uh, reputation there. Uh, as far as I know, I mean, uh, for all I know, there's a giant argument about the uh, the editing of those editions. And the other thing that he does is he uh, meets the artist Austin Osman Spare and becomes a close friend and co-cultist uh, of his in the 50s. And this is where I think is one of the two places that the grant really uh, becomes important. He's sort of arguing with the other uh, Crowleyans over who gets to run which version of Crowley's orders, he eventually sort of sets up his own Typhonian order, which is a, uh, a version of the Crowleyan order that uh, concentrates on what he calls the Typhonian current or the set current. And that is the current that is specifically involved with both outer human beings and, of course, the dark-sided left-hand path uh, sex magic with Cthulhu-type stuff. And the... Uh, uh, Grant uh, not only brings Austin Osmond Spare's uh, sex magic uh, and artistic uh, sensibilities into the mainstream of his uh, OTO work, but also brings, as I just alluded, the work of H.P. Lovecraft to the attention of, of sort of uh, Crowleyite uh, tradition uh, ritual magicians. And that, I think, is his other great uh, contribution in that sense to... Uh, the, the the world of ritual magic now is that he is a huge fan of Austin Osmond Spare and of H.P. Lovecraft, and thanks to his work, both of them have taken uh, sort of, you know, lead roles in, I think, generally thought of uh, Western magic and, and Western sort of magical uh, aesthetics. And was he of the, the school that held that, uh, surely that Lovecraft was not just a 
creator of engaging fiction, but somehow channeling a greater cosmic truth that one can then uh, discern and work magic from. Yes, Lovecraft is absolutely channeling the greater cosmic truth. And the uh, greater cosmic truth, depending, of course, on which section of which book you read, is either a metaphor for all of human experience, or it's, honest to God, actually squid aliens from beyond the Mauve Zone. And one of the many wonderful things about Grant uh, is that he writes... Uh, his books, of which I think there are sort of six major ones and a few uh, secondary ones, uh, in a breathless uh, a purple prose that tends to the ultraviolet, as if both are true simultaneously. And his ability to sort of drop everything into the great swirling current of uh, post-Crowleyan occultism is the thing that simultaneously infuriates uh, more orthodox Crowleyans, and also means that everyone who does any kind of magic winds up with a uh, a Kenneth Grant book, or more likely a bunch of Kenneth Grant books on their bookshelf. Now, I, I have a question for you, but before we do that, we must luxuriate in the, uh, speaking of ironies, in the phrase Orthodox Crowleyans. Yes. So, everyone, listeners, join us in the luxuriation. Now, if there's a motif in... Lovecraft, as far as magic and sorcery is concerned, it's that it is a very bad thing to involve oneself with. So how do uh, Grant and people influenced by Grant square that circle of, uh, you know, if you were to take uh, any degree of literal truth behind Lovecraft, surely one would conclude that you want to find someone safe to uh, gain one's powers from, like perhaps uh, a Bast or a, some nice dead ancestor rather than Yog-Sothoth. I believe that, and this is where it starts getting into sort of the tall weeds of actual um, uh, Grantian thought, is that because there is a flaw in Crowley, that Crowley did not in fact name the Eon, that we are entered, we have entered the nameless Eon. Now, Orthodox Crowley and say, of course he named the Eon, this is the Eon of Thelema, and you are all just a bunch of jerk jerkingtons for not believing that. But uh, uh, Grant is very concerned that we are in a nameless Eon, and that the only way to sort of survive the nameless Eon is to open ourselves to the experience of these outer beings, and to incorporate them into a human uh, perspective. And this, I think, is another place that Grant parallels Durleth, is that Durleth believes that the, the the great old ones and the various monstrous entities of Lovecraft's fiction can be classified as good and evil and can be contained within that kind of uh, framework. Grant believes basically the same thing, except that he really likes the evil part, uh, <laughs> because he uh, believes that, uh, in general, the whole uh, point of being a magus is you get to sort of be immune to all kinds of things, and that that's why he is an awesome 11th degree magus, despite what those liar Lyingtons say. Uh, and he is capable of uh, channeling Yogg-Sothoth or having sex with Shubnigarath or whatever it happens to be, and thus... Uh, I would recommend protection for anyone who wants to try that. Oh, indeed. Uh, especially given that his version of Shubnigarath is considerably more spidery than other versions. Uh, so the... Uh, so, so, so there's a there's there's a level in which there's that sort of you know fundamental egotism that is at the heart of 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 real, well really of all black magic is that the, the 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 human will the human mind can enforce its own perceptions and its own notions of morality onto the cosmos and the notion that you can make a deal with the devil and not have to go to hell the notion I mean which goes back to Faust and and even before that to the the, the um. Uh, 
the the myth of Theophilus, uh, and the notion that you can uh, read the Necronomicon and comprehend a Yog Sothoth without being destroyed utterly are the same sort of notion. The notion that there is some sort of, you know, uh, everybody else got eaten, but I have the inside track. It won't, couldn't possibly happen to me. Yes, I, I, that is how you know how awesome I am, is that I'm going after these things that eat everybody, and I'm not eaten. Uh, and so, uh, uh, Grant is uh, basically, uh, and, and to say something is basically the case with, with Grant, I think, is, is probably a misnomer. Uh, because if one of the many wonderful things about Grant is the way that he basically, uh, here I am saying basically, and is the way that he incorporates everything, you know, almost without any degree of self-consciousness or or uh, regard for its provenance. And so he'll put the Necronomicon in, he'll put UFOs in, he'll put uh, Cthulhu and Typhonian Set and Voodoo Gods and all of it into the great universe of uh, the occult. Uh, there is a, a, a great uh, Alan Moore essay called Beyond Our Ken that is about uh, Kenneth Grant. And that uh, sort of implies, or actually it sort of states straight out, that what Kenneth Grant is, is a guy who really loves what uh, Moore notes Sax Romer calls the romance of sorcery, and wants that to be the fundamental focus of magic. And as someone who is not particularly, you know, ever going to be a black magician, but I think that if you are going to be a black magician, that should be the kind of black magician you should be, is the one that is all about all the crazy stuff. That, you know, the boring part, if you wanted to do something boring, I mean, that's what Methodism is for, right? Right. He's sort of doing the, the Philip Jose Farmer thing with pop culture, except it's black magic pop culture, and he's saying it's real. Yeah. He, he's, um, uh, he, he's, a, he's, he's a wonderfully bizarre writer. Uh, the Orthodox Crowleyans uh, criticize Grant's writing in almost exactly the same terms that Orthodox literary critics criticize Lovecraft's writing, which in both cases means they're not getting it. I, I would parallel uh, Kenneth Grant as a, as a stylist, sort of as H.P. Lovecraft doing Charles Fort uh, level of, um, uh, of, of writing. It, it's that same torrent uh, of, uh, of ridiculous words uh, piled up to create an overwhelming Im impression without necessarily differentiating between any given piece of it. And over the course of uh, his his sort of two trilogies, his big six books, he sort of maps uh, what he calls the night side or the the mauve zone, depending on on which book it is. The 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 sort of the backside of the tree of life. He's very concerned with um, uh, what uh, I think someone said. Uh, uh, who was it? It's Gerald Suster, the other another Crowleyan uh, biographer, uh, calls the the clepothic slime. And as uh, Alan Moore says, uh, as though that's a bad thing. <laughs> and, and so the, this sort of um, uh, sexy, seductive, dangerous, spider-filled dark side, everything that is, that is in heavy metal fonts and uh, 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 girls with pierced noses and belly shirts and blood on the walls and the late productions of Hammer Horror, all the fun part of Black Magic is the part that... Uh, Kenneth Grant just really can't get enough of, and then he just foams endless nonsense about it, which is, I, th I think, what makes him delightful for me. It's why I, uh, you know, try to uh, justify buying the things, even though, you know, I have four of the books, and surely getting the last two is, is not going to add virtually anything to my actual sum of knowledge about black magic, but it's just fun. It, it's, it's just a, it, it's sort of, um, uh, 
a, a William S. Burroughs type approach, I guess, with uh, without you know the immediate uh, excuse of <laughs> grotesque hashish use. Although I'm sure there was some of that too. So foreign also ran. We found a lot to talk about, but I guess I'd like to close on my standard consulting occultist question and ask, uh, who was he as a person? Obviously, he's someone who uh, started out deciding to attach himself to the most outsized of outsized personalities, and then I guess tried to be like that personality afterwards. But uh, who was Kenneth Grant if you were hanging around with him? I don't know uh, per se because I don't know an awful lot about his life. He he managed to you know live a good long life. He uh, died in uh, 2011 at the age of um, you know in his 80s. So he he certainly didn't uh, you know die young and uh, covered in someone's vomit the way that a lot of people tend to in this field and al allied areas. So he, maybe he did wear protection while in Congress with Shubnig around. Yes, he was uh, married to uh, his his wife, uh, Steffi Grant, who was an artist who may have been, who um, uh, hooked him up with uh, Spare. Uh, and as far as I can tell, uh, if there was, you know, any uh, jiggery pokery, it was probably, you know, purely in the interest of black magic and nothing... Uh, and, and nothing ventured, nothing gained, that kind of thing. He doesn't seem to have had an awful lot of, you know, sex cultists. That doesn't come up. He was a considerably nicer guy than Crowley, it sounds like, just in terms of, you know, not leaving people um, uh, raped and bleeding in the Algerian desert. So yes, not that that would be difficult. <laughs> no, yeah, certainly, you know, plenty of people could do that. But he, um, uh, he, he doesn't seem to have had any... Um, you know, any larger sort of uh, agenda about, um, uh, you know, building a harem of underage girls or, or um, uh, getting blitzed on, um, uh, on crystal meth or anything like that. He uh, wrote uh, fiction and poetry, just like Crowley did. He would sort of uh, just hang out in the London suburbs and not uh, go around and do an awful lot of uh, the ridiculous nonsense that a lot of the, your other magical order type guys would do. He, he seems to be more the recipient of uh, uh, Crowley and group outrage than the uh, instigator of it, although obviously when you claim to have been secretly initiated into the 11th degree of the OTO uh, by Aleister Crowley just before he died, you open yourself up to a certain amount of hair pulling. Um, he, uh, the, the obituary uh, that I read in The Independent uh, said that he was uh, sort of warm and uh, clever and beloved by his many followers and friends, uh, which implies that he was certainly, you know, he was virtually the only person at Crowley's funeral. Uh, and if one uh, can take the uh, the independent on Sunday uh, worth anything, then one can one can infer that Grant was uh, generally a, a nicer person. I, I I think the quality of his writing is less mean than that of Crowley, which on the one hand, is not necessarily a, uh, you know, an, a better or worse type judgment, but I think that the quality of his writing is much more a sort of, hey, guys, let's all talk about crazy purple voodoo spiders together, as opposed to uh, a, if you knew what I knew about the crazy purple voodoo spiders, you would be transfixed with horror and unable to deal with it as I, awesome Aleister Crowley, can. So I will only refer to it in abstruse Hebraic uh, fonts and... Uh, illusion. So I, I sort of get a more generous sense from his writing than I do from Crowley's. Although, again, uh, he is, uh, uh, in, uh, in, in Moore's uh, beautiful phrase, as crazy as tits on a piranha. 
<laughs> which is probably still the fundamental impact that he would have made on someone uh, just coming at them, you know, all of a sudden over the wood-fired bagel uh, counter. Well, I'm not sure if uh, uh, completely crazy plus lovely and charming is the worst combination that one could have uh, as we study people here in Consulting Occultist. No, I mean, it, 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 I, I certainly think that um, uh, if you're looking for a babysitter, he's a better babysitter than Crowley, and probably even better than Dee, because God knows what the angels would tell John Dee to do with your kids while you are off looting his house. Dingoes are better babysitters. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Than Alistair Crowley, that is true. Uh, and on that note, uh, we will once again end our session with the Consulting Occultist, and thus our episode. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Dork Tower. Drive Through RPG. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Find our website, where you can leave plaints and panegyrics at kennandrobintalkaboutstuff.com or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes on Twitter he's at Kenneth Height and he's at Robin D. Laws see you next time when once again we will talk about stuff 